Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. If you work in politics, one of the first things you learn is to plan your life around even and odd-numbered years. The even-numbered years, of course, are election years. They're not really that conducive to things that require planning, like a wedding or a big move, or require a lot of your attention, like, I don't know, a baby. The odd-numbered years are often a time of transition. You can finally catch your breath and take personal and professional inventory. And I have my own transition to announce. After more than two and a half years and 143 shows, give or take, The Last Politics with Amy Walter will be the weekend of Friday, February 26th. It has been a remarkable time to report on politics. From covering the historic number of women running for Congress in 2018, to following the twists and turns in the unpredictable race for the 2020 Democratic nomination, to reporting on the unprecedented challenge of holding an election during a pandemic, Our goal was always to help our listeners understand not just where we are, but how we got there, and to help prepare you for what was around the corner. And it's in that spirit that I want to spend these last four shows, looking at the political challenges ahead, to understand their root causes, and to understand how they're being addressed or ignored. For me, there's no issue of greater concern than the loss of trust in our institutions. According to a recent Marist NPR PBS NewsHour poll, the proportion of Americans who think the nation is on the right track is at its lowest point in 20 years. A mob descended on the U.S. Capitol in a literal attempt to overthrow an election. Thousands of Americans took to the streets this summer to protest long-standing police violence against black and brown Americans. But skepticism of the government didn't start with President Trump's attacks on the deep state or his claims of voter fraud. Distrust of the police didn't begin with the murder of George Floyd. And mistrust of corporate and business leaders wasn't created by Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. So how long have we been here? How did we get here? And is there any hope that we can find some resolution? For that, I turn to two people who I think have provided some of the most insightful and thoughtful analysis on the state of American institutions. Jamel Bowie, opinion columnist at The New York Times, and Yuval Levin, the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and the Editor-in-Chief of National Affairs. I first asked Yuval to tell me what it means to have trust in institutions and how we got to the point where trust is so low. It's almost a cliche by now to say that Americans have been losing trust in institutions, and that's certainly been happening for a long time. But it's worth stopping and asking, what does that actually mean? What is trust in an institution Part of the answer to that is some sense of competence and ability, surely. We trust an institution that does its job well. But another key part of that is that we trust an institution when it seems to shape the people within it to be trustworthy, when it somehow plays a formative role, an ethical role that creates more trustworthy people. Every institution performs some function. It educates children or enforces the law. It helps the poor. It makes a product. But as it does that, it also forms the people in it to do that work by some standard of integrity. And we can trust the institution when those people seem to take that standard seriously. And that especially means when it somehow constrains them, when they're bound by some idea of integrity. So if you think about who we trust and how we trust, maybe we trust a journalist because we have a sense that 
she works in some institutional framework of editing and verification that means that when she says something, it's been checked. We trust a lawyer because he seems to be bound by some professional code. There are things a lawyer wouldn't do. I think we've been going through a process in America by which we've lost the sense that our various elites are actually bound in these ways, that there are things they wouldn't do. It feeds a general sense that the systems in our country are not working for us. They're working for the people inside them. And those people, rather than being formed and shaped by them, are somehow just displayed by them. The institutions are platforms, and everybody stands on them and shows off or builds a following or builds their brand. And that makes institutions very hard for us to trust. And it makes the whole system that they're part of hard for Americans to feel a part of themselves. We all look at them as outsiders. And that sense of the outsider, that sense of alienation, is, I think, at the core of a lot of what we think of as the other problems in this broader social crisis. So, Jamel, what makes our relationships to institutions so unique at this moment in history? My thought on what is distinct about the current period is that we have, in addition to elite impunity of various sorts, uh, elite misbehavior of various sorts, we also have these sort of underlying material conditions that are changing for the worse, right? And so, you know, wage stagnation, the decline in stable jobs, the rising cost of healthcare, education, housing, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that we're pretty familiar with, not just the decline in living standards, but I'd also argue a decline in the sense that individuals can have any impact on the world around them, right? So, in the past couple of years, there's been a lot more conversation about the need for revitalizing unions. And it's typically thought of, discussed in terms of raising living standards. But the other thing that unions did at their best, this is not certainly at uniform, but at their best, what unions did was invest ordinary workers with some amount of control, accountability, democratic efficacy about their workplaces as well. We don't really have that anymore. You have that on one end. And on the other end, you do have these profound demographic changes. People are making claims from the state that in previous eras and previous decades were not seen to have a right to make a claim on the state. And I think that those two things are acting together to produce sort of a something kind of particular and unique. There are distinct ways in which people now have an ability to express themselves, which didn't exist before. And yet there are also ways in which people have less of an ability to actually exercise agency and act in the world. And the combination of those things has meant that we increasingly now tend to mistake expression for action. And what happens in a lot of our institutions is that they become platforms for performance because we have all these mechanisms for performance. We have social media, we have various ways of fragmenting the forms of expression that seem like they allow people to have much more of a voice than they used to. And yet at the same time, because of things like the decline of unions, also the decline of community and civic institutions and family, people actually have less agency in American public life than might have been the case two and three generations ago. And that combination contributes to what I think is a distinct kind of loss of trust in institutions in the sense that we think of them as transformed into just platforms. And what everybody seems to be doing at the top of every institution is performing. A member of Congress now, younger members in both parties, very often think of their jobs 
as playing a part in a kind of political theater, as the advantage of being elected to Congress is that you can get a bigger social media following, a better time slot on cable news or talk radio, and that's how you can make a difference, rather than thinking that you can work within some kind of functional legislative process. Now, they're not wrong. They actually have much more of a chance to move the culture by expression than members of Congress used to, and less of a chance to move public policy through legislation than members of Congress used to. And so those two dysfunctions kind of act together to create what I think is a different kind of loss of trust in institutions, though it's certainly related to those longstanding critiques that have been part of how Americans have thought about our institutions forever. There's this rallying cry on the right about cancel culture. So how do you sort of balance this, Yuval, with questioning where our institutions go, trying to strengthen or reimagine them. At the same time, you have a significant swath of the American public that believes by just doing that, by just raising the question, you are essentially delegitimizing their place in America. I think it's an enormously complicated question. And what you find on the right now is a form of the American right that is anti-institutional. And I think in a sense, the way that the right can help a free society, the way that conservatism serves a liberal society is by defending the institutions, sometimes defending them from the people in them or the people who run them, but defending the roles they play. To see an anti-institutional conservatism or at least an anti-institutional right develop is very worrisome and I think can be an enormous problem for a free society. And we've already begun to see what that can look like. But it is rooted, as you're suggesting, in a kind of fear, a, a fear that the left has come to dominate our major institutions and that it's using that dominance to exclude the right, to exclude different views, to exclude different ways of life. And people feel as if there's institutional power being used against them, generally not in politics, but in the culture, increasingly in the economy, in the media, in the academy, um, being used to exclude them. And that sense of fear is absolutely essential to understanding what's going on in the contemporary right. A lot is driven by a fear of the left. And I think that fear is rooted in some legitimate concerns, but that it is also exaggerated in ways that has turned the right against our core institutions. You know, ultimately, the right has now found itself basically arguing for safe spaces, arguing for simply free speech, to be allowed to do whatever they want, rather than arguing for what is the university supposed to be, or what is the, what is the media's role, making a case for these institutions in a positive way rather than making a purely defensive case for yourself against an adversary. Um, I think that makes it very difficult for the right to see the purpose of our institutions. And without seeing that, it's very hard to see the purpose of conservatism. Jamal, what do you see as these fights about cancel culture and defund the police, et cetera? What do they tell you about the possibility that we can trust each other to make needed changes to institutions that, quite frankly, you know, were built at a different time for different purposes and, and to reimagine them. Part of me is surprisingly, I guess I'd say surprisingly um, low-key about all of this to the extent that I spent a lot of my time in 19th century American history. And compared to the cultural and political conflicts of, say, the 1880s, 1890s, things are still pretty tame 
we're not looking at, you know, we're not looking at society-wide convulsions. We're not looking at, you know, mass communal violence. I mean, there are a lot of things that have fallen out of living memory for Americans that didn't happen that long ago and were far more disruptive and destructive, I think you could say, to a civic fabric than what we're experiencing now. Having said that, the combination of Americans' usual fierce fights about what it means to live in this society, which are, are ongoing and I think are just part of living in a pluralist democratic society, are running up against institutions that you know, can't resolve them, but can't even really make progress on them. There are other things happening too. You know, so when we think about the not just rise of conspiracism, but this you know this very baroque, uh, acute spread of conspiracy theories. Yeah, I, I don't think we can disconnect those sorts of things also from just the conditions of the pandemic and the profound isolation a lot of people have experienced, which in some ways is sort of supercharging the alienation and lack of efficacy that people already feel. And so when you when you bring that into it as well, you do, I think, get this this potent mix that is producing a level of discontent and anger institutions and desire to dismantle institutions that is pretty striking. Jamal, I want you to talk about, because you write a lot about this too, the sort of institutions within institutions or institutionalism within an institution like Congress, like the filibuster, right? Or not impugning someone's name on the House floor. These are things that have become, uh, are being defended as, well, we can't change these things because if you do that, then you are undermining the institution itself. So do you want to talk about that and how maybe just reforming some of the things that we assume are institutions can actually help shore up an institution? The filibuster, I think, is a great example here because I think so much of the um, argument about it and around it has confused what it does with the purpose of the Senate itself. And so for me, everything about the design of the Senate kind of is geared towards making this a body that more or less operates on deliberation. But that once deliberation is accomplished, you take a vote and whoever has the most votes succeeds. And the hope, again, my understanding was that just the process of deliberation would mean that when votes are taken, they're not actually going to be that narrow, that just in the nature of things, you would have a good amount of consensus for when things happened. And so when you look at something like the filibuster, which wasn't really part of the scheme, which was sort of accidentally created and then discovered later on, um, which wasn't really in, in, in use very much till the late 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, and then in its modern form, um, kind of constitutes a, a, def- a supermajority requirement for most legislation. That to me seems to be something that ultimately is actually standing in the way of the idea of the Senate, that by becoming a de facto supermajority requirement, it actually discourages policy entrepreneurship, it discourages debate, it discourages all these things because everyone knows that you're not really ever going to come to anything like a consensus. Or if you do, the consensus is not going to, the threshold is not going to, you're not never going to reach it. Right. That 55 is somehow not bipartisan, but 60 is. Right. Or even thinking just outside of partisanship, right, that if you assemble 52 votes of senators who, you know, let's say 90% of them belong to one party, 
but it's in just the nature of the things that they're all coming from different states and different regions of the country and they have different constituencies. That that doesn't constitute a consensus that are ought to be able to um, to pass legislation. And that to me is just a, it's a, it's a perversion of the purpose of the Senate. And I think you can see that in how slowdown and sluggishness in the Senate has kind of debilitated the entire legislative branch and kind of be, I, I think contributed to both the executive branch and the judiciary kind of acting in ways that they probably shouldn't. So for me, right, like the filibuster might be an institution, but it's become kind of maladaptive to what the actual thing is supposed to be doing the Senate. And that's why we should reform it. Where are we uh, at this moment in time where people are literally storming the Capitol to overthrow one of our most sacred institutions, which is our our federal government, do you believe that there is a possibility that there will be enough people in good faith that can rebuild these bonds of trust? How how optimistic are you? Well, you know, optimism just means you expect good things to happen, and I'm not an optimist. I think there's a different thing, though, that there's a different force called hope, which is different from optimism. Hope means you think that the resources are there if we work at it, to make good things happen. It requires agency, not sitting back and expecting the best. And I am hopeful. I am hopeful because I think a lot of people are aware of these problems now, feel them in their bones as problems, are not satisfied with the status quo. We have to think about how to fix problems with an eye to enabling our our institutions, our society in general, to work. Right? We have to think like physicians, so that there is such a thing as health, and there is something wrong, and that something wrong can be fixed. But the aim ultimately is to enable our society to function as it's meant to, and as we wanted to, and as would serve us well. I think that what's missing now, the missing ingredient in a lot of our institutions, is a sense that constructive reform is possible. We talked about Congress. You talk to members of Congress now, and I've certainly had this experience with Republican members at least, a lot of them can tell you in great detail what they don't like about Congress, but they don't live with the sense that they could just do something about it. They could change it. They could improve it, and that it doesn't have to be the way they found it. It wasn't always like this. It isn't always going to be like this, and there are ways to improve it. I honestly think part of the reason we find ourselves in this moment has to do with a a kind of failure of generational transition, or at least a slowness of generational transition. Our leadership, and not only in politics, is unusually elderly in this moment. We have a 78-year-old president. He replaced a 74-year-old. The Speaker of the House is 80. The majority leader of the Senate is 78. And there is not a lot of talk about the future in our politics. There's a lot of talk about various grievances that are very deep-seated, but not enough about what we're going to need 20 years from now that we don't have now. I think a more concrete, practical politics that thinks about the future and that thinks about solving problems could be more functional. It's not that we wouldn't be at each other's throats. That really is what politics very often amounts to. But it would be aimed at more constructive goals. You see some of this at the state level, at the local level, in some places, not everywhere. But when politics can be a little more practical, when we can think about about solving problems rather than just describing them and articulating them in ever greater tones of urgency and anger, then I do think that there are reasons to hope. Our country has come through harder times than this, but it will require a sense that the absence of trust is one of the problems to be solved itself. And that therefore, ultimately, we have to find ways to live together. 
I think that this the the idea of civility that people talk about in very vague terms can have a concrete meaning. Civility just means that you live as though you expect the people you disagree with to still be there tomorrow. A lot of our politics now seems to pretend that those people can just be made to go away somehow by some miracle. And that's not going to happen. And if we live with the sense that these disagreements are still going to be here, but that ultimately there are also real needs to be met and real problems to be solved, I do think a more practical politics is imaginable and is, and is achievable. Thank you for that, Yuval. Jamel, thank you as well. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks very much. Jamel Bowie, opinion columnist at The New York Times. Yuval Levin, editor-in-chief of National Affairs. Another big issue just around the corner, redistricting. After the contentious 2020 election, Democrats narrowly control both houses of Congress, but the parties will battle it out with the redrawing of congressional maps, which happens once per decade following the census. This process has the potential to influence the balance of power for years to come. Republicans currently have control of redistricting in 18 states, including big ones like Florida, North Carolina, and Texas. The seats gained by redistricting alone may be enough to give Republicans a majority in the House in 2022. But the National Democratic Redistricting Committee has been strategizing for this moment for the past four years. I spoke with Kelly Ward-Burton, their executive director, and asked her what kinds of things they've been doing to prepare for this moment. Our entire model and and the the reason for NDRC was to create a centralized hub for a comprehensive redistricting strategy so that we could prepare for this moment that we are now in. Uh, You know, we've been very aggressively um, active in court to sue against the gerrymandered maps of the last decade. And we've seen some real success on that front. Um, Notably, we got new maps in North Carolina and Virginia. Um, which helped, you know, the congressional majority that we have now. Um, We also have been trying to move the needle on the power structure of redistricting, um, both through elections, so who has a seat at the table when maps are drawn, and also by supporting reforms to make the redistricting process more fair. Um, You know, the ballot initiatives to support independent commissions, um, statutory reforms like in Ohio to give a voice to the minority party in the legislature. And, and what do you say to Democrats who feel like, you know, in some cases, these redistricting commissions might actually give Republicans an advantage? Well, when you look at the redistricting power structure, it's really important to compare 2021 to 2011. So it's not just about the 2020 election. You have to go back and look at how we moved the needle since the last redistricting process. And there has been a lot of movement in the direction of fairness um, since 2011. And there's, there's a number of things that you can point to. 
for example, this is going to be the first time ever where the majority of congressional seats are drawn by either some type of commission or with some type of reformed effort in place that checks the majority. So the ability of the Republicans to do what they did last time, where they had trifecta control over the redistricting process in the vast majority of states to the tune of 213 congressional seats, that is no longer on the table. You know, look, we don't want to gerrymander for Democrats. We don't think that you need to break the system in our favor in order for us to win. We want the system to be fair. We want the maps to be fair. We want democracy to work. We're not scared of the voters. We want to have a system where we talk to them, we work with them, we make our case, and then voters have the opportunity to fairly choose you know, one side or the other. And what we've seen from the Republicans over the course of the last several years particularly the last several months, is that they are very willing to break democracy in order to maintain power. And we are watching them very closely on redistricting because they're already indicating that they will use gerrymandering in the same way that they've been using voter suppression, in the same way that they've been using frivolous lawsuits. You know, all these tactics that we've seen from from Trump and other Republicans to maintain power, no matter the cost to democracy, they're willing to do that. And, and, you know, gerrymandering is a version of that. We really see the fight for fair maps in the context of protecting and fortifying our democracy. Um, That's how we see it. And, And I think that's that's an accurate read on the situation. So, you know, commissions are part of that. Fairness is part of that. Fair maps is part of that. And that's what we're going to be fighting for during this redistricting process. Kelly Ward-Burton is executive director at the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. The Republican counterpart to the National Democratic Redistricting Committee is the National Republican Redistricting Trust. And like the NDRC, they too are hard at work preparing for what's sure to be a long and drawn out process. (laughs) Did you catch that? Drawn out. Anyway, Adam Kincaid is the group's president and executive director. I spoke to him about their priorities as states start to organize ahead of redistricting. The National Republican Redistricting Trust focuses on data and litigation. Those are our primary jobs. Our number one thing we've done is we've built a a redistricting database for all 50 states. That's something that people don't believe this when I tell them, but it's true. It's something we've actually never had on our side of the aisle before. And that's handicapped our ability to help, you know, states that maybe are are blue, but there's still Republicans there that would like to have a voice in the process. So that was our number one priority was to fix that problem. Democrats have had groups that have done this for decades. We've never had a group that built this level of uh, kind of an exhaustive database until now. So that was priority number one. Now the trust is kind of moving forward into the next phase. We're doing a lot of public education. We're doing a lot of education with legislators, with legislative staff. Then after the maps are drawn, we will go into a litigation phase. I was going to ask you specifically about litigation because you also made this point. The New York Times did a piece uh, recently uh, featuring Democrats and Republicans and you in particular saying that your focus was going to be defending maps drawn by Republicans and being more aggressive about going after Democratic gerrymanders in the blue states. So can you talk to us about the blue states that you're going to be spending time looking at and where are states in which, say, in 2010 or in previous years, you, as you said, you were not aggressive enough and how you'll be more aggressive this time around. So 
when I'm talking about the blue states, I'm talking about the six states that Democrats have full control over congressional redistricting. Uh, those are Massachusetts, Maryland, New Mexico, Oregon, and Illinois. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at each of those as the maps are drawn, how the process unfolds, um, and, and see, do the Democrats adhere to their own state criteria? Do they adhere to you know federal law where it's applicable? Are there other opportunities for us to sue under um, state constitutions? This is something that Democrats did a really good job doing over the last few years is they went into these states and they sued under state constitutions and brought some novel claims that had never been brought before. And we're going to be looking to do the same sort of thing in those states because we haven't been on offense. We have been on constant defense for a decade and it's cost us. What do you foresee as the kind of cases that you would be bringing up as you're looking at some of these maps that Democrats are going to be drawing? So one of the problems that we have with litigation moving forward is something that the Democrats ran up against last time, which is that the Supreme Court has said you can't bring partisan gerrymandering claims in federal court, which means that a lot more of these claims are going to be brought in state courts. And so what Democrats have done is they've used clauses like the free and fair elections clauses in state constitutions to go and sue and argue that maps should be redrawn. We'll be looking at clauses like that, um, other ones that may allude to maybe geographic principles in redistricting that exist in some places that may be violated with maps drawn by you know, Democrat legislatures and signed by Democrat governors in some of those spots. Um, so those are the sort of things we'll be looking at. And then, you know, we'll be finding plaintiffs to, um, you know, and working with plaintiffs in states where there are Voting Rights Act claims that need to be brought. And that's another thing that we'll definitely be be talking to folks about in each state as, you know, people come forward with issues. But, you know, those, again, when you're looking at redistricting moving forward, the litigation that's going to come is going to be multi- Faceted. You're going to have issues, but the problem is that the the um, Congress hasn't really spelled out those criteria, right? And there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution about um, you know what you know gerrymandering is or is not. It's kind of in the eye of the beholder. And so what we're going to be doing is looking into state constitutions that do have some of those criteria uh, and and looking at how we can bring cases around those. Adam Kincaid, I really appreciate you taking the time and and talking us through this and. Obviously, we'll be talking to you a lot more as we go through this year. Glad to. Thanks so much. Adam Kincaid is president and executive director of the National Republican Redistricting Trust. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories, stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. We've been hearing how some partisan national organizations are strategizing for the work of redistricting. But a growing number of states have, in recent years, made attempts to strip politics out of this process by removing the map-making power from the legislature and handing it over to an independent commission. Who gets to be on this commission and how the process actually works varies from state to state. I was interested in hearing how the commission process works in a state where it's already been tested. So we turn to California, whose first commission was formed back in 2010. 
This time around, there are 14 new members, but the process for choosing them worked the same. Paul Mitchell is owner of Redistricting Partners and the vice president of Political Data. He's based in Sacramento, California. We asked him to walk us through the steps. The commission process for getting people from kind of an application to the actual, you know, seat on the commission, it was actually created by Charles Munger, bow-tying, conservative, unique guy with some flair, created this process that I kind of like to call shoots and ladders process for selecting commissioners, where you start with this broad application process, then uh, any commissioner applicants who meet the base criteria of basically not conflicted out are then asked to do a second application with kind of an essay component to talk a little bit more about them and why they want to be on the commission. Then the state auditor's office, which has nothing to do with redistricting or politics, but was chosen because it's kind of a, you know, objective agency, they see a panel that is randomly selected of attorneys from the state auditor's office to go through these applications and start selecting the highest qualified. They take these applicants, they narrow the field, it goes to the legislature, where the legislature has a voir dire process in order to cut the list down even further. And then it goes back to the state auditor's office for this bouncing ball process where they literally wheel in the bouncing ball machine from the state lottery. Number one and select uh, randomly the first set of commissioners. Number 11, Jane Anderson. That first set of commissioners, the, the lucky eight, come in and they get the opportunity to be seated as the commission and they begin the commission process. That lucky eight's first job is to find six more commissioners, to go back into that pool and to find applicants that balance out the commission. That balancing of the commission is done through the selection of what they call the chosen six. And this week, I had the opportunity to talk with two of the newly minted commissioners. My name is Jane Anderson. I'm a registered civil and structural engineer in the state of California. My name is Sarah Sadwani. I'm an assistant professor of politics at Pomona College. I started out by asking them, why on earth they chose to apply for this job. I've basically always been civically minded. I follow what's going on. I have no desire whatsoever to be a politician, but I feel we all need to participate in the process. But I have a specific skill set and something I don't do. Like the idea of writing a report, uh, that is not something that I would ever volunteer to do. And when I saw this job opportunity or this opportunity, I thought this is the absolute perfect thing I could do to not just participate, but potentially be a valuable contributing member. Because what I do on a day in, day out basis is I work with people. I work with facts, data, grabbing information from many different sources. And my ultimate product is a two-dimensional drawing. And that is exactly what this commission is going to do. And I'm also used to working under extreme deadlines because my specialty is actually earthquake engineering and specifically failures and collapses. And so when I'm called in, it's an emergency. And I, you have to quickly get something done. It's wonderful, but ultimately it has to, drawing has to go out the door at a specific time. And that's sort of 
what I thought I could bring to this commission. Were you surprised that you made it through the entire process? Oh, absolutely. I did have the luxury of watching most of this process. And I have to say my hat's off to the state auditors uh, who so, so well did their job impartially out in the public. It was a wonderful experience to watch. And every single cut, I thought I made it. I was shocked. I was elated. And when my name came bouncing out of that little lottery ball, I literally went into shock. My husband was jumping up and down. It was amazing. I was shocked and greatly, greatly pleased. Sarah, can you tell us about your experience in this and um, your decision to apply in the first place? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I had followed to some extent the 2010 process. I, I certainly knew about it uh, and, I, and I, I understood what's at stake, right? So I'm trained as a political scientist. I write about and, and conduct research on uh, Asian American and Latinx voter behavior. And so I have a very clear sense of what's at stake and I just thought, well, I'll throw my name in because I think there needs to be a diverse pool of candidates. And I never really in a million years thought that my name would get chosen or that I would make it through the process. So it was it was definitely a, a pleasant surprise and a shock and, and just a, an amazing opportunity to serve in this way, right, to serve the people of California. How are you able to do your current day job and balance this? I mean, how, how much of your time will this, especially now that we're getting into the heart of redistricting, is this going to take up for you? Uh, it's a challenge. I'm not going to lie. Um, I, I definitely work uh, nights and weekends for sure to do both. I should also note that I have three young kids at home as well. Mm. Um, so it's um, definitely a heavy workload, but um, but also so rewarding, right? I mean, it's it's just incredible. It's an incredible opportunity to be able to work in this way, right? I mean, we are a 14 member commission made up of Democrats, Republicans, independents. Um, we interact with one another and, and, and find common ground, ground during this time of hyper-partisanship when it doesn't look like, like you would ever find common ground across the different parties. And so I think being a part of the commission brings me so much hope and joy um, that it's, you know, it's, it's worth every moment. This sounds so very um, refreshing, the way both of you are talking about this at this time that we're living in, which is so polarized, which is so partisan. Um, can you help us then understand the the role, the job that the Citizens Redistricting Commission does and how partisanship plays into that? Jane Anderson, you identified as a Republican, Sarah as as a Democrat. So how does partisanship become not as central or is it part of it, but you're just able to do this in a way that remains civil and collaborative? As a registered re Republican in California, of course, I'm in the minor minority mm -hmm. and um the wonderful thing about this is, which is a, one of the considerations I thought about before I applied, is in California, on our independent commission, the one criteria that we cannot consider 
in redistricting is politics. So it automatically, you check that at the door. And so while it is, yes, things are hyper-partisan, that's not part of what we're doing. Now, we do need to be aware of the politics, but it's from a different perspective. It's not how, how do we use this in our redistricting. It's how do we make sure it does not come into play in our redistricting? You know, one of the criteria is we, as a commission, cannot know where incumbents live. And therefore, when, if we're going to redraw a district or something, and we might literally put across the street, move into another district or her to another district, uh, we wouldn't know that. And so we actually have the luxury of not having to deal with it, quite frankly. And I think, as Sarah was saying, all the commissioners uh, are very, very good about working together. One of the other goals of, of doing the Independent Redistricting Commission is, of course, to get in front of as many Californians as you can to hear their input. And obviously, you have to do this in the middle of a, a health crisis. So, Sarah, can you talk a little bit about how you plan on doing that, how you plan on getting input from communities all across this humongous state? Two pieces, I suppose. One, the criteria set forth for our commission in California state law is very clear, right? That there we have to be in compliance with the Voting Rights Act. We have to go out and receive community input. It is a part of our mandate. Um, and so while 10 years ago that meant physically going around the, the state and, and getting that input, having community input sessions all over the state. Um, that is less likely this time around. Um, we are planning our outreach um, via Zoom for now, and we're also very much prepared and, and ready to pivot when this, hopefully when the situation changes and it's it's um, more possible for at least some of us to be getting out into the communities, uh, whether that's interacting with, with people in person or even just going and spending time to really look at different parts of, of the state before we have to make, um, make decisions about where those lines will be drawn. So that's extraordinarily important to us. Um, it's a part of our mandate and, and actually we're starting already um, a whole um, outreach component just to do education, just to kind of get folks ready to understand what is redistricting and why should I care about it um, before we, we go back out again to get the actual community input, to hear from communities about where their community lies, what ties them together and why their communities should stay together when we when we redraw district lines. Look, we're, we're only um, now it's been just a, a month since the storming of the United States Capitol, we know how raw um, emotions are a around politics, that our conversations about politics now have become so, uh, it's much more than polarized. It is now, it, in many ways, it's taken on you know these these levels of of distrust and and dislike uh, like we've not seen before, and and I'm I'm wondering how you feel now about being a face of a government institution. Do you have concerns about your own safety 
or what this is going to mean for you and your family uh, to to be in this position? To some extent, I suppose. Um, you know, I in my day job um, because I write about communities of color, BIPOC communities, and you know, discrimination, et cetera. I, um, that's always, to some extent, a little bit of a concern for me. That being said, however, my belief in the American people is that we are ready for a new era of good governance, of transparency, of moving toward a renewed trust in government. I hope. That, that is my hope um, for the American people as well as for the people of California. And I think commissions like this can help play a role in, in moving us towards that, in understanding that we can put some greater good in front of our personal interests and that we can collaborate and work together to do that. So for me, it brings me a lot of hope, you know, that that this commission could, could be a, a symbol of of a potential future that's without so much violence that that um, creates spaces where people can listen to one another and work through their differences. That to me is is something really exciting, and it's exciting to see as more and more states take on the idea of independent commissions um, for the redistricting to remove it from the hands of partisanship and to put that that power back with the people. And Jane, what about? What about you? How, how do you handle that? Well, um, I'm, I'm sort of had the luxury of, uh, you know, I'm have been sort of anonymous, uh, although I'm uh, uh, I'm easily recognizable in my community. I've been involved I, and I live in Berkeley. So there are very few registered Republicans in Berkeley. Um, <laughs> and that's never been a problem. I mean, uh, that's just never uh, you know, I'm. I actually run the neighborhood uh, group that I send the information out to, and I'm uh, people. You know, I know people all over the city. Um, I think many would be surprised to know I am a Republican, um, but would they necessarily? Uh, Berkeley's a very tolerant area, so you know, there we have all we have all sorts, all sorts. Um, going elsewhere, I, I'm a bit like Sarah in that. Um, we are representing, we're actually going to listen to people and most people want to be listened to. Uh, and we're trying to be there as we're coming in, not, Hey, here's the government coming in. We're coming in on with trusted partners, whatever the area we're going to, we're not just sort of walking in cold. We're walking in, uh, with another attachment. So, um, people, the idea of what we're trying to portray is that we are here to listen to you, to get you involved. So whatever your voice is, it can be heard in government. Whatever that voice is, we don't care. It's we want you to get involved and we want you to be able to pick your representatives, not have the representatives pick you. I'm hoping that people will come to us, um, you know, as far as, you know, the, got the, the bad things and stuff, all my life I've been in construction as a woman, a young woman in construction. Um, you have selective hearing. It's that simple. Well, Sarah, Jane, I wish you the best of luck. I do hope you can indeed go out and see these places for yourself, not just over Zoom, but even over Zoom. I'm sure 
you all will do an excellent job. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank Thank you you very much. Jane Anderson and Sarah Sudwani are members of the California Citizens Redistricting Commission. And here's one more thing from me. We started this hour talking about eroding faith in American institutions and ended it hearing from two California women, one Republican and one Democrat, who believe that they can make a difference in shaping our democracy. These two regular people with busy lives and other responsibilities tugging at them decided that their voice mattered. Yvalovin said hope, more than optimism, is what keeps him engaged in the work of trying to heal our nation's divides. Optimism implies that all will turn out okay, in sort of a passive way. But hope is the acknowledgement that it might not. Hope also requires, as he said, agency. Without hope, we're just stuck in a cul-de-sac of cynicism, always looking for someone else to blame instead of figuring out ways to be part of the solution. And it's not that our institutions have failed us as much as our leaders of those institutions have failed them. The church leaders who didn't protect vulnerable children, the politicians who've abused the public trust, the corporate CEO who put profit over his workers' safety. If you want to fix our institutions, then be prepared to take ownership of the ones in which you are a part. Be prepared to put the greater good of that institution ahead of your own personal needs and desires. Be willing to believe that those who have different ideas can be allies, not just enemies. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. We had producer help this week from Lydia McMullen-Laird. Polly Irungu, Meg Dalton are our digital editors. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Sham Sundra is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>